0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan,
1: Ryan, and Peter. Episode 209, recorded for April 19th, 2023. The Cloud Pod whispers sweet nothings to our code. Why don't you work? Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. How's it going? Good.
0: Great to well, see you.
1: Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, Another fantastic week in AI hell of cloud. It's just AI <laughs> everywhere. Uh, so you know, it's it's good. It's good times. But uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get into that again tonight, once again with uh, more cloud AI because uh, everyone's gonna have it. But uh, yeah, other than that, it's good. How about you guys? Have a good, effective week. Yeah, I was. Uh,
2: I had a good week. I was. I was excited because, uh you know, conversations. Uh, happened across Twitter that were relevant to the, the podcast, and then a, a, a experiment that I was running on my own, and so like it, it was uh, pretty good to sort of combine all those through, and I've actually you know had some real experience with some of the things that were announced.
1: That's awesome. Did yeah. uh, did uh, anyone complain to you about not being here? And Zero. Near Zero there. people Save.
2: have have yeah, complained, uh... which makes me feel very wanted.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they just—they just they just not really care, like, care enough about particularly Kubernetes. And so, like, no, yeah. no more, no more Kubernetes. I don't want to talk about it anymore. That's probably what people are. That's like, I probably think what just, we should do. We should, yeah, we should have might, them at me if they don't want us to talk about it. Yeah, that, that might be very true. Might be very true. Uh, all right. All right. Well, let's get into it then. AWS news of the week: uh, Code Whisperer is now generally available. Uh, and also now includes an individual tier that's free for use for all developers, which I was not expecting. So if you'd like to use Code Whisper and you do not have an AWS account, you can use it with just an email account uh, and plug it right into your IDE of choice, uh, which could be VS Code, IntelliJ, Cleon, GoLand, uh, Golang, uh, WebSolar, Rider, Piatrix Storm, PyCharm, RubyMine, Datagrip, natively, and native uh, tools like Cloud9 and Lambda Console all have it available to you uh, to use. And you can support, of course, Python, Java, JavaScript, TypeScript, C Sharp, Go, Rust, PHP, and more. Uh, the only thing you don't get is security is limited, I believe, to only Python, uh, Java, and uh, one other language I'm forgetting. But uh, yeah, that's uh, it's nice to see that uh, this is out and about. Uh, price-wise, it's uh, about the same price, I think, as GitHub Copilot, uh, other than the free tier, which is free for you. But if you're an enterprise and you want to have enterprise controls, uh, like, you know, Organizational management and policy management. <laughs> How your code was around—that's about nineteen dollars a user per month, which I believe is right about at the exact same market Hub Copilot is, if I recall the last time I looked at their pricing.
0: It's a new product. I will play with it. I'm super happy that they've launched with so many uh, with so many uh, different languages supported, mm-hmm. and so much support for different IDEs. It's it's a great launch. I I still think it mostly replace, uh, replaces replaces uh, you know, like copy and pasting from documentation a lot of the time you know the Bozho three docs are very good probably the, the best in the industry and I think it, it does a very good job of of sort of filling in the blanks in in some regards in terms of copy pasting those API examples and things into, into code but it's definitely a time saver um, I'd pay the twenty dollars a month for the uh, for the service even if there wasn't a free tier. Simply just to just to make it easy to to do that boilerplate stuff. I'd like to see in the future, you know, a, a bit more thought. I guess is, is the is the thing kind of going into the the software that gets built by these tools. Right now, it's very much a, a a very junior engineer. It's like go do this exact this exact thing that I want, and it does a pretty good job of of doing that. But in terms of you know designing an overall architecture or designing data structures and things. All the tools, including CodeRisper, is still very much lacking in that space.
2: Yeah, you know, and and you know, I, I really would appreciate something when you're like, you know, working on a function that's like nine layers down, it just pops up and you're like, do you do, are you sure? <laughs> do you think that maybe you should refactor this into a library or not this like that kind of you know sophistication, which is difficult, but I mean, it would be nice because you know that's where I need to be saved because it's three in the morning and I've lost all sensibilities and what good practice is.
0: Yeah, I guess it has no, no, no forward-looking um, sort of considerations to, well, what does the next sprint look like? Mm-hmm. What's, you know, what's the next piece of work we're going to have to bolt onto this and how's that going to work? And so I think it's, it's going to come eventually. This mm-hmm. is a great stepping stone. I expect the reasons of free tier is so that they get much more data from user experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be retraining the model based on people's feedback, you know, which choices do people choose because it's great that you can type a comment, write this thing for me and then tab through many different options of, um, of, you know, things that fulfill the same request and you get to choose your style that you want or the, or, um, or whatever, basically. So I'm sure that, that data will go back into the model and retrain it to, to start mm-hmm. delivering things that, that people use more often with, uh, with less human input, which is, you know, kind of scary in itself.
2: Yeah, but, yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. <It's laughs> but edging us closer to code writing code. Yeah, sure. you, you thought identifying stop signs on a on a recapture was bad, but but now you're basically training the model to to put you out of a job. At least mm-hmm. at least the more junior engineers, I'm, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, and you know the question is is how do you become a senior junior junior senior engineer without being a junior engineer first? And that's no. always I think that's going to be a weird challenge that we're going to have to face across a lot of industries.
1: It's interesting uh, why we're, you're talking about this and using it. Uh, either of you, you tried the Copilot? Because uh, it's also free for an individual.
0: No, I haven't tried Copilot.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I get to understand how they, they differ. But you know, it's interesting looking at the pricing. They have a team level, um, which is only $3.67 per user per month. Uh, and then they have the enterprise version of the $19.00. But you know, they're really the big differentiator on some of these things. Um, yes, there's SAML single sign-on and the things that Amazon has in there just for 1925. But they also give you, they go from 500 megs of package storage and 2,000 CICD minutes a month in the free tier to 50,000 <laughs> minutes of CICD uh, and 50 gigs of package storage. Uh, so that like they're giving you a lot more in their $19.25 than mm-hmm. uh, AWS is. Because AWS is really giving you those controls and single sign-on. Uh, so that, I would like to see maybe Amazon come up with some more stuff for their enterprise package at that price because it it seems more competitive to the 367 per month uh, what they're giving you right now than maybe the 1925. Yeah, I mean
2: that is sort of a challenge with Amazon, right? Like this, the way that they're managing the user access to these, you know, removing remo- it outside of the Amazon account, whereas you know your your CI/CD tools are still very much inside that account. I think. Um, it is sort of a challenge, but I bet you will see it over time, or at least a uh, blending across um, what is managed by the builder ID and, and what is within the Amazon account.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The, the builder ID is only required for the for the free tier, but the the um, mm-hmm. you know, professional tier you can use a regular IAM identity. So uh, yeah,
1: I wish there was a way that I could get my free user though with my normal AWS account. <laughs> That's my personal one. Versus having to get this AWS builder ID, but yeah, I'll quibble about that later. (laughs) And there's a
2: weird like you do have to have an Amazon account to accept the invite of the builder. Like there's, and I wasn't quite sure exactly what what was being linked as I went through that workflow. And I, I, you know, this is a conversation Jonathan and I were a part of on Twitter, which was like, why? You know, like what's the? I want to know more about the the strategy and what they're going with that. You know, and I understand the differences and I think Jonathan's right. They are trying to change it from, you know, access within an Amazon account to, you know, mechanized resources and get it more user exposed to direct user access.
1: Which but, I mean, uh, it makes perfect sense. I, I get why they do that. It just, yeah. It, it I want to know the full
2: story, right? And yeah. I know it doesn't exist yet, but I, it would be nice to see where they're going. And I haven't seen any write-ups that way.
0: Yeah. I like the idea of teams. I think um, Amazon probably missing out on something by, by not um, having the concept of teams, because I guess if you think about it, if you have a team of developers all using the same tool, Copilot working towards a goal, then, you know, Copilot could learn potentially the style in which the whole team should be working and make, make appropriate suggestions so that the code style and the application architecture sort of like is consistent across an entire app stack rather than each person individually deciding which, you know, which style they particularly want for a task, but
1: yeah, it's all good. All right, let's move to the next thing. Uh, Amazon is excited to announce the release of Simple Database Archive Solution, or SDAS for short. It's an open source solution uh, available under the Apache license, which can uh, allow you to deploy in your AWS account to archive data to AWS directly from an OLTP database. Uh, This is apparently a common problem faced by many AWS customers, which is the need to efficiently and securely archive your data from the database to something cheaper, like S3. Uh, This offers you uh, the ability to connect to uh, Oracle, MySQL, or MS SQL Server today, and it will automatically create all of the function, step functions, Glue, S3, and Athena jobs to move your data easily to S3. And this is all available to you as open source. Uh, so I do look forward to seeing support for additional databases like maybe Postgres uh, soon. But uh, this is nice if you're trying to do data archiving out of your database. Uh, I wish they had a little bit of ability to maybe allow me to rehydrate uh, easily, but uh, I didn't get enough into the experimentation with it to see if I could maybe reverse the flow. But uh, it's still nice to have an option. Uh, I mean, that's where we would use Athena for those to get that data back, I guess.
2: Yeah, and you could use glue to rehydrate as well. You just have to sort of, you're a little bit at your own mercy there um, with getting it right. It'd be nice
0: if it was more native. Yeah, it'd be nice if the plugins, database plugins, which could actually pull this this data back out of S3, uh, albeit more slowly, but at least you could still have access kind of like the, um, the cold storage for Elasticsearch in, in, in a way. I think it's going to open up some interesting problems in the future, though, because, you know, great, now we can archive the data, and yes, that's been a problem and gets us away from these 14 terabyte SQL Server database instances and things. But if you think about it, you know, if you have a seven-year retention plan for data, the app is also going to be changing. The data structure is going to be changing over that time. So it's great that you can rehydrate data. It's great that you've got a copy of it, but is it usable in the future? And maybe some thoughts should go in now to, well, you know, in the future, these are the types of things that we want to do with this data. You know, customers want this type of report, or we may need this type of e- extraction from the data. Maybe a service like this should actually incorporate those kind of ideas, where whereby you don't just store the data, but you also store some queries alongside it, so that in the future, if you want data out, they're already kind of pre-canned because your entire staff will have rolled over in that period of time. The data structures will be changed. You probably can't re-import it into the data in, into the database and use it with the with the new version of the app. So I think um, in the same way that you know we have these like, archives of floppy disks and CDs and DVDs, which in 20 years are all going to be completely useless, the sort of obsolete data structures will also be useless. So I think some sort of thought needs to go into that in, in terms of usability of the surface over the, the long term. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's clear from the write-up that they're, the, the purpose is not really to make that data usable, right? It's to store it for compliance and regulatory reasons, right? So it's like, yeah, can post. you get it out when the, <laughs> when the lawsuits filed, I think is the success
1: criteria, right? Like,
0: so
1: it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be a fun story to have to delete customers data. That's now gone through this pipeline. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, it's finally happened. Uh, I thought it might happen maybe at reinforce uh, or maybe they do something, you know, at another event, but, uh, they decided they probably couldn't wait. Amazon is getting into the AI business with some new tools for building generative AI, of course. Uh, you know This is an exciting inflection point, I guess. Uh, and most customer <laughs> experiences in going will be reinvented with generative AI in the next 12 months. Uh, so it'll be everywhere, everywhere. Uh, of course, AI and ML have been a focus for Amazon for over 20 years. Of course, not enough to be first to market, but a uh, third mover like Google is a good place for Amazon to be maybe in this one because uh, there's a lot of fighting to happen still in this space. Uh, so they're announcing Amazon Bedrock, uh, which is a new service that makes foundational models uh, from AI 21 Labs, Anthropic, Stability AI, and Amazon accessible via an API. The Bedrock is the easiest way for customers to build and scale generative AI-based applications using foundational models, democratizing access for all builders. And the Bedrock will offer the ability to access a po- range of powerful. <sighs> this is so hard. Foundational <laughs> models <laughs> for text, <laughs> images, and including Amazon's Titan foundational models, which consists of two new. LLMs we're also announcing today through a scalable, reliable, and secure AWS-managed service. With Bedrock's serverless experience, customers can easily find the right model for what they're trying to get done, get started quickly, privately customize their foundational model and with their own data and easily integrate and deploy them into their applications using AWS tools and capabilities they're familiar with. And they also announced the Tranium 1 and Infinium 2 instances are also generally available to power. All of this new generative AI work you're doing out there.
2: I remember just lamenting about how like AI seemed to be like a a tagline of every security or, or operations software that was being pitched to me for, and I thought there's no way it could possibly get worse. And what a fool I was because it is really, you can't open a, uh, a news article without it being somehow related to AI these days. And it's crazy to me that, you know how much it's going on and I can't even keep up, at all, like I don't understand how this service compares to, you know, the, some of the the work being done by OpenAI and what what's being incorporated into. Like, I I don't even know how they relate. Like, it's crazy. Like, I know there's models. I know we train them, and I know that eventually I won't have to do any more work.
0: But past that, I'm really lost. Yeah, I don't think we're in a position to even predict what what the space is going to look like in in six months or even twelve months time from from now. I think that the rate of innovation in this area is gonna be absolutely exponential. And uh yeah. the, the the cloud space will look entirely different yeah. very, very quickly. Yeah, just the, the impact. Like it's gonna be crazy.
1: In the new Terminator reboot where the Cloud Pod mercifully mocked AI and was first to be murdered by the AI is taking over the world. Uh, you know, we'll remember this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm just hoping it's slightly offset that I very frequently tell my echo devices please and thank you. Like that's that's I <laughs> hope that maybe. <laughs>
1: You know, well, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not doubting that it doesn't help, but uh, you know, if they're killing everybody. They don't care that you said please. And please no,
2: me. So, probably not. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know of any terminators that were like, oh, they said that, they said please yeah. don't kill me, and they. This they guy's died. okay, so, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's fine.
0: I think we're in an interesting place right now because these models are very static. You know, the ChatGPT is mm-hmm. built on data that that ended around about the end of 2021, so it's a little out of date. Mm-hmm. What what they don't do, what none of them do as far as I know, at least the commercially available ones, are sort of update their own internal representations of knowledge based on you know, the exchanges that they're having with users today. So it's it's mm-hmm. very deterministic. Um, I, I think like the next evolution of this stuff is going to be, well, now the models, you know, <laughs> now, now they do become conscious in a, mm-hmm. in a sense. <laughs> do you has to get
2: cheaper and more efficient for that to happen? Because it's still crazy expensive to retrain that model on a large data set. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think, I think the sort of sidestepping the requirement to, to retrain the entire thing from scratch and allowing it to incrementally update itself based on new information is, is going to be the next big game changer.
1: All right, let's move to Google, who also has AI stuff. <laughs> no way. Yeah, shocker. Uh, Google has released a new cloud automation toolkit for healthcare organizations and previewed the Med Palm. P A L M to neural network capable of answering medical exam questions. And mostly what I think I take out of this is I hope WebMD updates to this new model very quickly. Uh, so I can get something other than cancer after three questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, how hard is it to train a model just to return that it's probably cancer, which yeah. is what I assume this does. <laughs> all right. Next story. Uh, Google is announcing the public preview of BigQuery Change Data Capture, or CDC for those in the database space, to meet the evolving demands. This capability joins their existing data stream for BigQuery solution, which helps you seamlessly replicate data from a relational databases such as MySQL, PostgreSQL, AlloyDB, and Oracle directly into BigQuery. Of course, that means that you're doing ETL type work uh, through that data stream. That may not be good enough for you, and that you need actually to have every change made to every table tracked through CDC. And so BigQuery's native CD support allows you to directly replicate, insert, update, and or delete changes from source systems into BigQuery without the complex DML merge-based ETL pipelines.
2: This really feels like the BigQuery team is just like, almost like just challenging customer requests at this point. Like, fine, we'll just, we'll incorporate every database functionality into into this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Whatever you want with your data, we will now make it, now make it applicable. But uh,
2: what's your next excuse?
1: My experience with CDC is you, know, you basically capture the change data and you shove it onto a Kafka queue and then you process it into BigQuery or into other uh, you know, CD, uh, GCP uh, storage solutions so you have, you, can, you, know, you can use BigQuery to query it. So you're definitely cutting out the middleman, which is super appreciated.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny because it's not new technology. I mean, databases have replicated to each other. It, it nodes in their own clusters right. using streaming logs like this for you know, mm-hmm. literally decades. So I'm surprised wasn't it wasn't an existing feature. Um, especially in updating something like BigQuery where you don't want to have to do bulk data loads of you know, terabytes of data at a time. It makes, makes total sense.
2: I think it's really in the cost of, you know, BigQuery-like solutions coming down and, you know, for large data sets, right? And just and also license costs of a lot of the big enterprise, you know, database solutions going up. And so, like, I think it's, the you're right, this is nothing new. And you, if you think about, like, you know what, a data migration service into a cloud like this is effectively a lot of the same sort of technology that's underlying all of that, but it's just not you know like now I think it's either an acceptance like the as you know as a community we're like oh no that's a good idea we can put that data over there for application use or or it's just becoming more cost effective I can't tell.
0: Yeah, I remember using the streams from DynamoDB and how, how useful that is because we don't care when data doesn't change because nothing's changed but we do care when right. stuff has changed so having have those hooks into into changes in state is, is really important. So, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah.
1: I was just looking up SQL Server CDC that came out with uh, SQL 2008. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's been around for a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup at the juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the Cloud Pods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice.
1: Uh, and then moving on to Azure, who, shockingly enough, does not have an AI story this week. They actually did, but I, I couldn't yeah. be bothered to talk about it. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I was like, I, I already had about twice today. I just can't add a third <laughs> into the thing. Uh, so, the, But uh, we do have a, a new uh, Azure CNI overlay for your Azure Kubernetes service clusters. Uh, apparently, this is a big step in addressing networking performance and the scaling needs of their customers. Uh, apparently, customers have constantly been pushing the scale and performance boundaries of their existing networking in AKS and have needed uh, faster throughput for their container workloads. Uh, basically, the difference of this is that the uh, prior implementation used the KubeNet plugin which is an existing overlay network solution built on Azure route tables and the bridge plugin. And uh, it was only recommended for uh, clusters of no more than 400 nodes or 200 nodes in a dual stack cluster. And so uh, this new solution allows you to pull uh, IPs out of the virtual net address space and then put an overlay on top of them to make it easy to define to them. So there you go.
2: Yeah, they, these solutions are, they're kind of strange, right? Because it doesn't seem like a whole lot of much, but then... The, how this actually manifests is you know where you start you want to deploy a new um cluster on azure and you realize that you have to you know scale out your network to support a slash 16 or slash 17 you know because it's got to have an addressable space for each one of your pods and containers and sometimes the service itself doesn't let you sort of tailor that right like eks for a long time in amazon it, it was just defined you had to deal with it you couldn't deploy it into Uh, You know, you couldn't modify basically the network settings at all. So things like this really simplify that, right? Because you can run it, you know, without needing that direct access to your, your network and you can address the pods and stuff inside your cluster on isolated IP space. And if it doesn't need to talk directly to other infrastructure, you're good to go just as it is. So this is a great usability feature for AKS.
0: I think networking just needs to go away. Like all the, <laughs> these, the, these constraints are just so bizarre, like, okay, so we don't have these addresses to choose from. Like what difference does it make? Like f- from, the, f- mm-hmm. from the perspective of communication between one service and another, what difference does it make what kind of address it has or where the address comes from or anything else? Like what matters is, is this service, is this instance of this service running in a place that wants to talk to either a particular instance or any instance in another service? Like that, that should all just completely disappear. It should all be invisible. To, to anybody who, who cares about deploying and running applications in the cloud.
1: That is the dream, for yeah. sure. Which is a great segue to this week's cloud journey. <laughs> 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 well, we're going to talk about uh, Kubernetes and how does it support your cloud native architecture. Uh, and I guess my first question for both of you guys is, why does it have to be Kubernetes? Why? Like, I like I'm an ECS fanboy, you guys know this. Mm-hmm. Well,
2: because the internet said it has to be Kubernetes. If it's not Kubernetes, I mean, it's not cool. The entire
1: right? entire technology industry has said it has to be Kubernetes, uh-huh. so uh, not just yeah. the internet. Now it's interesting
2: because a lot of a lot of articles you know you read out there are that it has to be you know you how do you build your app cloud native? Well, first thing you do is put it on Kubernetes. I'm like, no, that's not the first thing you do. <laughs> the First thing you do is put it in a container. You manage your image via proper CI/CD. Like, what's this Kubernetes thing? You don't need any of that. You know and uh, and a lot of people miss that they they really skip ahead to the running of this application and don't really focus on what changes you need to make in your development cycle for a cloud native application if you're going to use if you're going to prefer managed services how are your devs going to develop are they going to exercise directly against the production service costing money or do they need to have some way to replicate that service for local dev. Like these are key challenges that really need to be addressed up front. And I think that the Kubernetes sort of wave has really done a disservice to cloud native in that sense.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And I think I'm still not entirely sure why Kubernetes has won the hearts and minds the way it has. I think part of it has to do with the prestige of of companies like Google. Google. You know everyone wants to do things the Google way Google you know look, look at Google doing SRE look at Google doing DevOps look at Google doing all these cool things and people kind of idolize the the, the people and the processes and the tools that they build and isn't it fantastic and they've done a fan, they've done a really great job of advocating for this for the tooling um you know where's where's openshift where's the coolness around openshift nobody cares about openshift That's, it's, you know, it's, it's old legacy stuff that that you're running in the data center. nobody, does anyone run OpenShift in the cloud? I I have no idea.
2: (laughs) If you're already in bed with Red Hat, you know, maybe. Yeah. I, I think that's a lot of it. Kubernetes is open source. You know, a lot of these solutions aren't. Yeah. OpenShift really is just Kubernetes under the hood, right? With some layers on top of it.
0: Right. So yeah, well, there's, gets, there's a lot of different things to choose from. There's this, this ECS, you know, there's Fargate, which is a different, slightly mm-hmm. different type of abstraction, I guess, that takes care of the infrastructure as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could do Docker Swarm locally. Uh, Podman's a good solution for local development. There's lots of different ways to orchestrate containers, but Kubernetes is, is one. Kind of unfortunately, I think, because it's just so complex. Uh, it's, it's great if you've got a team. You know, j- just like deploying an application you know, in a, in a data center, it, you've got a network team, you've got a virtualization team, you've got a systems team who spin up machines. It's great if you have that supporting infrastructure for, for an app, a developer to, to spin up an app because they have those people there to do those, to fulfill those roles. Um, and I think uh, Kubernetes just kind of brings in the same requirements really of you need a team to run it. You need to understand how it works. It's not simple. It doesn't do a lot of things that people think it does. Those are all plugins. Oh, you want ingress? Well you have a controller for that. Oh, you want auto-scaling, you need a controller for that. It's really just a framework for orchestration more more than the tool in itself. Whereas I think ECS, uh and Fargate, some of the other tools are, are actually more complete solutions and probably easier for people to step into first. No, I couldn't agree more.
1: I, I lost you know, I argued with Ryan for a very long time about uh kubernetes versus ecs and eventually won <laughs> and win. then he you know he drank the kool-aid but you know we both admitted that yeah kubernetes is the future and everywhere everyone's going to go eventually but uh, for what we were trying to do which was just run a container and needed basic orchestration it was beautiful ecs was great
2: well you won't convince me that ecs wasn't the right answer it's just that kubernetes despite being the wrong answer is still the future right because yeah. it's it's closer to managing your own hypervisors than it is uh, a developer platform, and in my opinion, and we would never ask developers to like support a local version of VMware or Zen to to run their own VMs for local development, right? And but yet we do expect them to do that with Kubernetes. And there's you know there's tooling and there's a lot of different options that may, are available to make it easier. But I, I think it's the wrong wrong tool for the job. In my
1: opinion. I mean, I, I sort of feel like it, I really wanted serverless to be kind of a cloud native pattern of, of choice. But you know, it took so long to fix things like Cold Start and to do things like Kubernetes really kind of filled the vacuum and you know, it simplified not having to worry about the eventing so much because you know, most dev teams just install eventing as Kafka and say, we just send shit over there and hope it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, versus actually really understanding how eventing is supposed to work. And so Kubernetes kind of became the how do I run a server like workload without a server? Um, and so it, it did really stifle some of the cloud-native uh, innovation that was happening in serverless. I still think serverless is long-term the right play. If you're, you know, especially if you're showing Greenfield today, I think serverless has a lot of value to you. Um, but I do understand from the legacy pattern side that Kubernetes can add a lot of value to that. Um, and, you know, and really just containers in general, you know, we talked about previously, I think last time we talked about Cloud Journeys, about Docker and how it made packaging easier, how it simplified microservices uh, breakdowns. So, you got to have something to orchestrate it. I just, I, I hope someday we we get to the end of Kubernetes as this uh, you know end all be all tool, and say, look, we need something simpler and easier that just works. And maybe ECS has a new day <laughs> in the sun. Trying
2: to to rationalize services where you're using a deployment mechanism that's orchestrating a Kubernetes deployment that then has an operator that's calling infrastructure APIs to provision resources outside of that Kubernetes cluster. Like from a you know a centralized platform team or providing cloud as a service, like I don't know how to how to do that safely. Like it's there's a lot there that is very well, I mean, complex and hard to put guardrails around.
1: I mean, I think that's some of the fear I have around some of you know the less sophisticated Kubernetes users out there who get get excited about Helm. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. they're throwing in operators and things that are doing all kinds of craziness that you don't understand. Like it, it potentially could be an attack vector in the future for you know mm-hmm. an enterprising hacker who wants to learn Kubernetes. <laughs> uh, that you know, there's potentially exploits that could be done that uh, potentially are very damaging uh, to your environment. So, you know, do be careful. Uh, as all technology has, there are sharp edges, <laughs> mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah. You know, the other, other one that kind of comes up a lot once you get into Kubernetes is, okay, then how do I route my services between different pods and services? And that's where Mesh kind of comes into play with this. And how does uh, Mesh ultimately help with this cloud-native architecture?
0: Well, I mean, Service Mesh is ultimately just a, a, a layer in the in the sort of communication model. It's a network infrastructure layer, at least that's that's how I visualize it, which intercepts traffic, leaving a service, p- performs, you know, applies rules, and then uh, manages moving that that request or that data to an egress point for, where where it's ingested by another service, and it sort of facilitates the flow. And then kind of going back to what I said about how networking needs to go away, service mesh is is, is really the the way that's going to be facilitated.
2: Service mesh is, you know, if 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 regular networking is role based access control, you know, service mesh is the attribute based access control, and it's. It, it's an abstraction of of those things where if, if you're tagged a specific way and you have the right attributes then you can access the the other things that are tagged and have the right attributes and it's it's a way to sort of simplify that communication which is fantastic because then it, it really allows access to enable communication in a in a safe prescriptive way without opening all the floodgates to everything or or trying to hide everything behind a walled garden but you know there's there's a ton of sharp edges and there's a ton of use cases, you know, like how do you bridge two mesh networks and all these things where there's still sort of these really hard questions that you have to answer. And I feel like a lot of the the public documentation for cloud native application development and, and architecture guidance and really sort of glosses over that, right? So they give you all that rope. And then you, you know, you get to a certain point and you're like, oh, this is gonna be hard to integrate with, or this is gonna be very difficult to do, you know, workloads in different clouds or, you know, whatever your challenges are.
0: Yeah, I felt like I need to apologize to all the people I interviewed over the years when I've asked some questions about, you know, well, what happens what happens when you type Google.com into a browser and presenter? And as much as I enjoy going into depth with people about the the mechanics of how that works, you know, mm-hmm. all the way up the stack. I think service mesh. That the goal of service mesh is to make that go away. I don't think um, application developers should have to be aware of those things in order to build reliable applications anymore. I think service mesh is, is ultimately the abstraction that, that that means I don't need to ask that question anymore.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, mean I... that question
0: was never pass fail. No, absolutely not. No, yeah, yeah. it was never <laughs> pass
1: fail. But I mean, I I also think you were talking about a developer, right? Like. As a front-end developer, there's actually a lot of interesting questions, you know, because the, the the beauty of the you know type Google into a browser and hit go is you know a it can go any direction depending on what knowledge they have, but like in a front-end developer, like understanding how the DOM actually builds a web page and how it processes JavaScript and how it interacts and like mm-hmm. actually being able to understand that and under, and be able to explain it, it will actually help make you a better front-end developer. So there's still value in these things. We maybe get away from. Asking questions like, you know, hey, how does the TCPIP handshake happen between the SSL Like maybe some of that stuff changes <laughs> in some sure. of those conversations, but you know, the, the core fundamentals of how that that gets answered, I think it just gets more deep into different areas. And uh, you know, if you're interviewing with Jonathan, do go study the GitHub repo that has all of the possible <laughs> connotations of how to answer this question uh, <laughs> for yeah. uh, you know what happens when you type in the browser, because uh, you know, and actually I I have read that what you and there were things I didn't know. Oh, tons. <laughs> so yeah. I learned a lot just reading through that too. But you know, the things I was always looking at was, um, you know, for DevOps people was like, what's you know, do you understand the networking? Do you understand how DNS functions? Uh, because mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the, the you know the issues happen in DevOps. So that's where mm-hmm. I was I was always focused on. But uh, yeah, when you get into like how DOM processes and all that, like that's where I learned a lot. Was just how that whole thing works, and I have a, mer- a better respect for web browsers than I did before. Yeah,
2: no, there's so much that's happening locally um, that I know is there, but do not know anything else. Right? Like it's
0: crazy. Yeah, I've had some really good answers to that. Some ver- some very interesting answers, uh, and in fact, answers that I, I couldn't really respond to because it's completely beyond my area of expertise. You know, had had people talk about well, you know, actually, well, when you press enter on the keyboard this message gets sent by the USB bus, and then it goes through Mm -hmm. all these colon processes Mm -hmm. and it hooks into this stuff like, wow, okay, that wasn't expecting that for this, for this question, but that is a fantastic answer. Thank you very much. (laughs) But I mean, just a look of
2: fear on my face as an interviewer, (laughs) like I got nothing on that. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
0: But I mean, ultimately as as much as you want networking to go away, you know, the the physics of the real world still has to apply somewhere Mm -hmm. and, and people build the applications or services need to be aware of the constraints of of you know the universe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you cannot uh, expect to send this this image that somebody's uploaded from here to here in in less than this amount of time and so as, as much as the, the connectivity issues go away like the real world sort of consequences of things that you do with a network uh, will always still be in play
2: i mean you think about the, the 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 strange cabal of the internet that's the that is icon right like they it just gets abstracted to different layers. You know, BGP advertising hasn't gone away, right? We just don't care anymore, right? you know, Because it's all just sort of handled for us. And so I think that TCP handshake and SYNAC will, will sort of follow that same sort of paradigm where it's like, there is a an old man with a very long beard who can explain that to you and, and no one else. In my day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you guys, you guys asked... Um, you know, as part of our brainstorming for this, we said what are popular service mesh technologies? And I was I was thinking about how to ask that question to you guys. I'm like, well, isn't all aren't all of them just Istio based? Like so my actual question to you guys, why are all of them based on Istio? Is there no other service mesh capability better than Istio?
2: I didn't realize that like all of them were. Like there's that's the definitely the one I know the most, but is like traffic and all that based on it?
1: I believe I believe it is. Oh, or wow. at least had uh, you know, at one point was forked off of something
0: in Istio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I hadn't written that question now because bit beyond Istio,
1: yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's definitely like you can do some service meshy things in console, but that's really mm-hmm. it's really more of like a gateway proxy than it is really, you know. I mean, yes, it does service meshy things, but yeah. it it's not what I would consider a service mesh by definition, which is really what Istio is, uh, which the sidecars and and being able to attach them and and then basically tag your your capability and then be able to do routing and stuff based on the, you know, like this thing wants to talk to that thing and I declared it and so then magic happened and now I have a connection.
0: I guess the only other one I do know is is Console Connect, which is which is a service mesh built on top of the existing like service discovery tools that HashiCorp built. I'm yeah, not sure what kind of adoption it's
1: so As I just said that, it was very clear that you were thinking very hard about what that answer was. Yeah. <laughs> and so you didn't hear me say console. <laughs> console Connect. <laughs> uh, that's all right, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I don't actually have an answer for that question because I, I was just thinking about it. Like, they're all based on Istio at the end of the day. And I think it's really, they all have different management interfaces to how you manage that tag uh, routing partnership and how it integrates with hardware to do that. Uh, but yeah, well, interesting. Well, I think uh, that's all I have on this topic. Do you guys have anything else you want to talk about with Kubernetes and, and this particular part of uh, Cloud Native?
2: I mean, other than a general advice to abstract your container orchestration as much as possible. Yes. Right. Simplify your workloads and your use cases where you don't need very complex service mesh that talks to 27 different microservices across 19
1: regions. And when you go Google for that, it says you'll find OpenShift. That doesn't mean just buy OpenShift. <laughs> like, think about it much more hard, much more difficult, uh, or much more thoroughly than that. Um, but uh, So next week, uh, we're going to keep going down on our cloud-native conversation. We're going to talk about uh, one of the trickier things, which is state. And actually, I think this might be a great place for Ryan and I to argue about the value of Zookeeper versus etcd versus console, <laughs> uh, which is just the biggest state problem of all, uh, True. which true. is uh, a fantastic uh, thing because uh, we have had many, many long conversations about the bullshit that is Zookeeper. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Ryan doesn't agree with me. So, yeah, that's a fun conversation. But uh, anyways, <laughs> so we can talk about that next week uh, and we'll uh, see you guys all next week here at the Pod.
2: Good night. Bye, everybody.
1: And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. All right, I do have an after show for you guys. So uh, Ooh. Ooh. we talked about, uh, we talked about uh, Zuckerberg and his year of efficiency, of course. Mm. And so he's you know, this week he laid off another 4,000 employees. So you know, the year of efficiency continues. But there are some side effects of the year of efficiency that uh, I picked up on. Uh, and so mass layoffs and absentee bosses create a moral crisis at Meta. Uh, employees are apparently are joking about being fired on internal Slack teams and a rampant gallows humor now exists inside the company as they see meetings being settled with HR or different things and go, up, oh, I'm fired, see you guys later, <laughs> and they go to their HR meetings. Uh, employees are also complaining, though, uh, that where Meta's top executives have moved away from Silicon Valley, resulting in individual contributors and now no middle managers as they've been laid off wandering around, and, and uh, apparently Zuckerberg is off of paternity of leave that there's no one leading the ship at Facebook. Because there's no leadership there. Uh, apparently, overall, between the layoffs, the absentee leadership, and concerns with the future strategic direction of Mark Zuckerberg himself, has negatively hurt employee morale. Shocker, shocker! I tell yeah. you.
2: I mean, gallows humor is just how you know any. How same, we get
1: through life in tech, Yeah, I mean. any
2: sane person deals with that, right? Like, good on them for you know making the jokes. But you know, I I can I'm frightened by the parallels that I see. You know, when I was working for Yahoo in 2008. Um, like the the absence boss, the, the not knowing what to do, not being able to get a hold of anyone because they're just not around, or they're checked out, right? Because their their mentality is, you know, like trying to find them, like what are they interested in, trying to evaluate where they stick around, right? They're not engaged in their job and really contributing, and it is sort of like, oh, I feel for everyone that's still working at Meta because that sucks.
0: Yeah, in a way, it's it's kind of setting everyone up for failure. I mean, it, even even people, even individual contributors who were engaged in their jobs who were high performance, you know, if they don't have that management structure, if they don't have the guidance, you know, setting goals and monitoring performance, how, how can they possibly mm-hmm. be successful? Yeah. You know, all that contribution is not visible.
1: How do you get the attention of the executive on the golf course, you know, mm-hmm. in Phoenix because he moved away? Like, what are you, you going to do? Yeah.
2: No, you're only going to get the attention of the executive or any kind of leadership team when you screw up, when there's a a deadline missed or when there's you know some other negative consequence and there's not going to be anyone at a lower rank who's there to sort of shepherd that from not happening or or to be able to lay context or air cover. Like it's awful. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I keep an eye on blind and just seeing all of the negativity as, as these companies continue to lay off people. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's constant. Everyone's living in a state of fear, which is not good for people's health either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, like we're up to 172,000 now in the, you know, in 2023. Uh, yes. so, you know, it's, it continues, uh, every mm-hmm. day, you know, another 1200 at Lyft, uh, another 600 at F5, you know, open door at 560. Like just it, it's never ending. It seems right at this moment. So, you know, if you're in tech, you're stressed. So then if you're in these, you know, you get laid off from one company, you go to the next company, now you're on the bottom of the list for the next layoff at that mm-hmm. company. So it, just not a lot of confidence right now in the tech sector.
0: Yeah, I guess the the only silver sort of lining is that of the people who are remaining without good guidance, you know, perhaps some of those people will step up and start being sort of unofficial team leaders and mm-hmm. and, and and sort of fulfill those roles for people mm-hmm. and um, and be recognized for that in the future. But there's no no guarantees for sure.
1: Well, will they be yeah. recognized, or will they do? Or at the- least they're learning the skill set. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> They'll learn. Maybe they don't want to be a manager. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I yeah, yeah. thought that was a good follow up to our year of efficiency uh, we talked about previously. So uh,
2: yeah, he better have some really good metrics coming in, you know, Q three, Q four this year, right?
1: I mean, yeah, he's gotta he's gotta hit his numbers Wall Street yeah. wise, man, or he's gonna get bludgeoned by the street. Yeah. So we'll see we'll see how that all works out for him. Um, you know, but he's on paternity leave right now, so what's what's really happening at Meta right now?
2: Right and sandberg Cheryl sandberg stepped down right so she was yeah she's, you know, she's kept that I running think. for a long time and like i don't know who's who's there left that can really fill in for for mark
1: yikes yeah i mean after cheryl left you kind of didn't you lost who was a, uh, you know right. who was the number two in charge who else yeah there's yeah I mean, i'm sure they have them i just they're just not as visible as she was but yeah she left in september 2022 um so she's been gone you know just on just a little bit over a year and a half a year now so mm-hmm. but all right guys we'll talk to you later
2: all right see, see ya